Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know I love starting with questions, you guys, but how many times <laughs> do you order takeout during the weekend? Because I'm, I'm really bad. I'm easily four times per weekend. I mean, I got so used to it during the pandemic. Who among us didn't have food delivered during the pandemic? And if you say you didn't, you're lying. Um, I work in Manhattan, but I live in (laughs) New Jersey. Um, I do not have time to cook dinner. So at the height of the lockdown, when I was doing my show from my basement and the kids were stuck at home doing classes online, I was constantly calling. Okay, these are my local restaurants. Blue Moon, Greek to me, River Tie. And yes, the Chipotle in Fort Lee. I hope, though, that you all tipped your local food delivery peeps really well. They worked so hard, right? They worked their tails off to keep us all fed back then. Among the busiest had to be DoorDash, right? The nation's largest food delivery company. They have been so successful in part because they hired a guy named Christopher Payne to be the president. Christopher had something very important on the very end of his resume. Growing up in Kentucky, he flipped burgers at McDonald's. He's here with me today to take us through his journey from the bottom of the fast food chain to the very top today. Christopher, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for that introduction. That's fabulous. Of course. I would have died without DoorDash during the lockdown. That's all I have to say. Well, I am I am thrilled that hopefully we're on the other side of that. That was a trying time for uh, restaurants, trying yeah. time for all of us, and so it's nice to nice to be hopefully on the other side of it. What were those early months like inside DoorDash? I mean, take us back to March of 2020 and open the window for our listeners to how you guys dealt with this sudden spike in demand for DoorDash services and and all of the drama that everybody at home was dealing with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was chaos. I mean, honestly, it seemed that things were changing on a daily basis. It's easy to forget now. But at the very beginning in March of 2020, it wasn't clear Mm -hmm. whether restaurants were going to stay open. And it also wasn't clear whether dashers were going to be safe delivering food. Um, And so it's funny, prior to March of 2020, one of our core strategies to make delivery delightful was to optimize the connect between the dasher and the consumer, the handoff, if you will, right? To make that a pleasant experience. And then overnight, it was like, oh my God, like we don't want them to come anywhere near each other. We need to develop a contactless delivery system that works everywhere. And so it was just, um, you know, it was an amazing time in the sense of like, I, I had, it was such like the company coming together, uh, the company finding ways to work with our partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, one gentleman sourced, you know, a million things of uh, hand sanitizers, wow. and protective gear for dashers, uh, and it, it, um, yeah, it was, it was an everyday, all day for weeks and weeks, and it, it was constant 
changing. And uh, at the end of the day, I was you know, very grateful for the company's ability to to deal with that. And we were very uh, fortunate to be able to continue operations throughout the entirety. Of the oh, I, I mean, I, I don't know about where you are in San Francisco, but in New York City, and I live just across the Hudson, so I can s- jump in the water and swim to, you know, the Upper West Side. Every night at 7 p.m., people would open their windows and bang on pots and pans to thank the first responders who were working oh, yeah. so hard. And then I would say after the first responders who were just heroes to me. I mean, my dad was a surgeon. He he wasn't alive during the pandemic. But I, I, I mean, to them, my hats are off forever. But also to the people who toil to deliver food to the rest of us. I mean, yeah. it's almost and, and very the, much like they yeah, were on the front line. And to the restaurant workers that, yes. that, that oh. made the food. And, yes. you know, it, it, we, we all have to be grateful. You made food. I mean, you flipped burgers when you were growing up in, is it Owensboro, Kentucky? Tell me about your childhood and how you ended up at McDonald's. Yeah, no, Owensboro is where I grew up. It's a small town on the banks of the Ohio River in western Kentucky. Uh, and, yeah, I, I uh, my first job, I turned 16. I McDonald's was opening a new store in Owensboro, and I I signed up. I loved it, actually. It was, it was my, I mowed lawns and stuff like that, but it was my mm-hmm. first real job. And I just thought it was an amazingly well-run company. Like I, I did everything. I did. I started with drive-through. I started. Then I did counter. And then I did. Uh, I cooked the cooked the burgers. I could cook forty-eight hamburgers at a time. And uh, <laughs> I ended up becoming a, a trainer. A trainer there. At what and, age? Uh, at 16, 17, Yeah. You were 17. training That's people. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, it, and so. It was it's full circle, right? Now McDonald's is obviously one of the top partners for DoorDash, and it was fun when I got to connect with the McDonald's team to tell them about my origin story as as uh, as a fellow McDonald's uh, employee. Well, as you say, full circle. But to me, a, a kid who goes at sixteen and seventeen and toils after school or on the weekends, each time that you got a a couple of dollars of a raise, what was that like? And what did you learn from that experience about serving people? Yeah, I love the customer aspect of it. Actually, I think it was a great first job because you, you literally got to interact with customers, talk to customers. And that was a big part when about training the new employees about you know, th- you, this is a customer service uh, job, and you, your job is to um, is to uh, you know interact with the customers and 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 make it, have a delightful experience. And so that was the that was the aspect of the job that I had in hindsight didn't rec- you know recognize that, that. I mean, frankly, that's a that's an enormous skill for everything yes. that I have done subsequently. Yeah. See, okay, this is what I want our listeners to understand that it's not. Oh, I'm just flipping burgers at McDonald's. It's Glean, squeeze everything you can from it, because that experience will help you at every stage in the future. And then your future takes you to Dartmouth University, Ivy League. Very nice. Tell me about that. What was that experience like coming from Kentucky to to the glass jawed, lovey people from the uh, the East Coast? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, it was a it was definitely a stranger in a strange land. I I. Uh, 
you know, at the time, I, I probably to you still have a, a southern accent to some degree, but yeah, I heard it back <laughs> back then. Boy, did I have a Kentucky accent! In fact, I don't think anybody called me anything other than Kentucky uh, at Dartmouth for the for the first six months that I was there. Uh, and so, but I I, I absolutely adored uh, my time at Dartmouth. I studied U.S. history, computer science. Um, Definitely started my path towards like being a jack of lots of trades. I I studied philosophy, religion, um, arts. Uh, you know, to me it was a it was a time to test uh, new new things, and uh, it just absolutely was was thrilled to be able to go there. And you know, a little nervous to be honest. I mean, just to you know, to be frank, you know, going from Owensboro to Dartmouth, I was mm-hmm. like, my gosh, you know, a lot of these kids were, you know, the governor of New Jersey's son was in, in, in my hallway. The you know, if when I show up and mm-hmm. and the folks had gone to these private schools in Exeter and Andover and others, and and so you're a little nervous, but yeah. um, you know, in hindsight, uh, Owensboro and the education system there prepared me well, as did my parents. Uh, and so it, it was a wonderful time well, for me. Well, it's a little bit of a culture shock because I'm Californian and my parents said, oh, you have to get a taste of Eastern education. Just, be, you know, they had they were sort of googly eyed about it. So they sent me to summer school at Andover Phillips Academy. And I mean, oh, yeah. everybody there would say things like, oh, yes, my my great, great, great grandfather was Paul Revere. And uh, oh, my great, great grandfather (laughs) signed the, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence. What did your grandfather do? I said, he was stuck on a boat coming from Russia, fleeing the Cossacks of Russia, you know, and he had a pillowcase with some of his possessions in it. Not very chic. But uh, listen, that that spirit that you bring from Kentucky and all of the rest of people who are listening. It it doesn't even matter where you came from. It's what you bring to an organization. And uh, I I guess quite an organization you got hired by right out of college, Microsoft. I totally got lucky. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'd love to tell you I was like this, you know, foresight and I saw Microsoft and what it was going to become. I started there in the summer of 1990, literally like, few weeks earlier, they had just shipped Windows 3.0, which became the product that propelled Microsoft to great heights in, in personal computing in the, in the 90s. But the truth is, I actually just was trying to go work in Washington State. My brother was stationed out there. <laughs> oh and uh, they, Microsoft was the only uh, the only company at, interviewing at Dartmouth from Washington State. So, so I don't think I've ever told that story before. So that my brother takes full credit for why I ended up at Microsoft. Wait, what, what was it. the job? I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, my first job was I was a seminar presenter. So I traveled around the United States. I would fly into a city uh, on a Monday. Uh, Some equipment would arrive. I would set it up in a room, a hotel, and then 300 people would show up on Tuesday. I, I would do a seminar on Windows and Windows applications, what eventually became Office. I'd try, I'd pack it all up, get a U-Haul, drive to the next city, do it again, drive to the next city, do two, and then I'd fly home. And, you know, boy, was it unbelievable. Like it was basically, I did, I did hundreds and hundreds of selling seminars to hundreds of people at a time for two years. And it, in retrospect, was like the biggest gift for my entire career. It's a little bit along the same lines you were talking about at McDonald's. 
because I now got to converse with small business owners that were trying to grow their business and be more productive and how to talk with them and listen and sell them on Microsoft's, uh, you know, emerging technology suite. Uh, it was, it, you know, it was a gift because, you know, that type of presentation right. is something that that is core skill to to being a business leader. But Christopher, you you said something that I just caught where you said in retrospect. So I think it's important for people to understand that while it's happening, it's hard. It's lonely. It's scary. It's monotonous sometimes. My first on-air market was Columbus, Ohio. I had never lived in the Midwest. I was freezing. I didn't know a single person. I had never been a reporter before. I had to hit the ground running. And <laughs> my yep. mom used to say, darling, you cried for a year. Um, but it it's not easy, is it? No, it's not. Uh, and I, I, I do think it, it, it helps. The, like, I've always had an optimistic point of view. So it's like, you know, you when you're in that, you know, I, I remember several weeks, it's lonely, right? This was very much a lonely job. I'd have, I'd have people come, I'd do the three hours and it'd talk about exhausting. And then people would come in and go, you know, where's the crew coming to pick up the equipment? And, and you know, and, and I'm like, oh, they're here already. You know, they're mm-hmm. here because it was just, it was you. just me. Uh, and, and, <laughs> they uh, are here, me. Ex- exactly. They are definitely here, right? And, you know, getting to go to every state in the United States except New Mexico uh, doing this, you know, Lewiston, Idaho, Lewiston, Maine, you, you name it, Portland, Maine. I, you know, it, 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 I literally tra- traverse the country, frankly, alone. Um, but then you get to connect with people. But it is it is tiring. It is hard. Um, sometimes, frankly, it's hard to keep yourself motivated because at, at some point you're really good at these things. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of like, oh, like, how do I keep this interesting? Yeah. How do I keep learning in this environment? And one of the tactics I found was just to really begin to experiment with asking questions, bringing the audience into the interaction ah. that transformed that transformed me because actually the boredom ended up kind of motivating me to like get you know, okay, I got to make this interesting for not just me, but for the people in the room. And, and so you're right, it's not easy. I think mindset is really, really important. And turning these things into opportunities, learning, always learning, always be learning is the that's been my if there's one core thing I've tried to do my entire career, it is it is that um, is learn has to be because then you die if you don't. You know, you're not going to win yep. if, you, if you stop learning. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
you, you did two tours at Microsoft. You, you've worked at some really big places, Amazon, etc. But I want our listeners to know about how you then started a company called Positronic because herein lies the glory and then the failure. <laughs> totally. Sorry, totally. I didn't mean to be so, that blunt. <laughs> hey, well, no, I think that's an important thing. My, my wife and I have this conversation. It's like, I think if you can't label things failure, you're not doing yourself justice. If you, if you, if you can't say, what did I do? What could I have done differently to have a different outcome here and label that as a, as a failure, not, a, not achieving what you hoped it would? Um, I think you're doing yourself a disservice because you can, oh, it's this fault. It was this Great Recession's fault, these types of things. But the truth is, you can always do things better and differently. And so Positronic was my, um, I'd done search at Microsoft. I'd led web search at Microsoft for four years in the early 2000s. I just had turned 40 at that point, and I, I wanted to become a founder. And, and so Dane Glasgow and I, Dane's now at Facebook, we, we founded Positronic. And the basic idea was to use search technologies in different fields. Uh, we were actually using search to crawl the web to try to predict stock movement, essentially looking at things like Twitter and other sources to see if you could, as the web graph was forming, if you could basically predict predict positive and negative movements in stock. Now, this was 2007. Mm, we had early from people. machine learning. And if anyone Yeah. It was. Yeah, we were doing neural networks and this is all related to the the search technology we had worked on at Microsoft. And you know, if anyone knows the history, 2007 early 2008, the great recession began to happen. And so <laughs> this was just a it was a disaster. Like I, I full on participated in a bank run. Um, okay, explain I, what that is for had, people because they don't know what a run on the bank is. Yeah, I got a real clear picture of it. So uh, <laughs> I had raised one point two million dollars a convertible note from friends and family. I would never do that again. By the way, this is one of the mistakes that I made. Okay, immense pressure to perform. Yes. Immense, right? And then all of a sudden. I put all that money in Washington Mutual and, you know, the, you, the news, the new, exactly. So oh Lehman Brothers and, and, and now the, the next to fall is going to be Washington Mutual. So I'm literally in line with like 50 other people on fourth Avenue in downtown Seattle in a, in a bank run, people like begging for their money and trying to, and what I'm trying to do is transfer the money into different banks to try to get FDIC insurance on that money. Right. Uh, and you know, I mean, you talk about like, I knew there was a lot of risk going into creating positronic. I did not know that a bank run in a financial crisis was going to be the thing that potentially, um, you know, did us in. Thankfully, JP Morgan Chase bought uh, Washington Mutual and that did not become the catastrophe. But the macro environment was such that like we, we needed to raise money at that point. And, you know, I could raise money, but the, the price tag on that was so great that I essentially would have been working for the VCs. And that was not something that I wanted uh, to do. And so um, eBay came calling during that period of time. And John Donahoe had just taken over as the CEO of eBay and wanted somebody to come in and run his search technology. And Dane and I had run that at Microsoft. Oh, and, nice. And, and so, 
that was a what I would we would call today an aqua hire, right? And it was a it was a good outcome, but it was n- not what I want. You know, it was not. It, I'm very appreciative. I enjoyed my eBay chapter immensely, and it was great, and it was way better than most of the other outcomes that were likely during True. this period of time. True. But it, it was not. It was not what I had hoped, uh, and that was a. It was a a stressful eighteen months. Let's but put it that nonetheless, way. a learning moment. A hundred percent. I feel like. You know, I, I guess now I, I feel like I, I, I don't get flustered much anymore. You know, if you, <laughs> After you go that, through a few of those, like, right. you know, cut, exactly, exactly. And, you know, go through a pandemic and go through, you start to realize that like, hey, you know, okay, with, you know, this isn't what I wanted, but I've got the skills to try to deal with this. And the reality is you learn, you learn from these experiences and you can take that forward. Can I also ask about your time at Tinder? You worked at Tinder, right? Yeah. I worked at Tinder for like 30 seconds. Yeah. So not <laughs> work, as long as it six. takes to swipe. Exactly. Swipe. I should have swiped left and I, I swiped <laughs> right. So I, yeah, no, I was the CEO of Tinder for six months and oh um, yeah, it, it did not work out uh, it, to say the least. So failure. Yes. Epic. Important. And you know, I, it, and, and so for me, I think the, the diagnostic was like, I didn't fit there and, and they, you know, they didn't, you know, I didn't fit with them. They didn't fit with me. And, you know, in, in retrospect, I, during the recruiting process, I think I spent a lot of time focusing on the opportunity, what they were doing. Uh, I thought it's very compelling in, in the sense that like, I, you know, I knew that it was viewed as a hookup app, but I also thought that it could become much more than that right. uh, to help people find what they were looking for. But I, I didn't fit with the with the company, and and so I'm actually grateful in hindsight that it 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 didn't like persist for much longer because I, I would have been miserable. And so uh, six months out of there, it actually led me like literally three months later to get a phone call from this guy named Tony Shu who is the CEO mm-hmm. of, of DoorDash. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And so I, you know, I take the phone call from him and I'm the first person Tony interviewed to be the COO of the company. And by this point, you know, I'd gone through this like torturous process and I felt bad. And I was like, you know what, why don't you go meet 50 more people? And if you're still interested in talking with me, come back. And, and we kept talking during that period of time. I even went so far. This is me applying my learnings. I, you know, I brought my wife into the conversation because she's she's a uh, she's amazing with people and and she's a PR executive and and uh, and then I was like, is Tony for real? Is he is he what he seems to be? And she came out of dinner with with uh, Tony and was just like, he's he's the real deal. Nice. Uh, and and sure enough, and so it, it led it led me to now I'm approaching seven years here at DoorDash, and uh, and super grateful. So you you know the. I would say this to to your listeners, like if you're if you want to be a generalist, you want to have these jobs and whatnot, you'll need to take risks along the way Mm -hmm. and you'll need to be comfortable that some of these things will not work out. And and that that they kind of hurt sometimes. Right. And it's not this linear path from A to B to C. It's sometimes you go sideways and sometimes you learn new skills and sometimes it didn't work out. And always be learning and be comfortable enough to take that risk. And hopefully it will lead you to great chapters like I've had at DoorDash. Uh, but there's going to be some tenders thrown in there along the way. 
Oh, that is the perfect way of describing it. Yes, sometimes you go sideways or you roll over or you go backwards. And um, I don't. Yep. I remembered being well. We don't call it fired in broadcasting. We call it non-renewal of contract. Uh, but uh, yeah, it happened to me. And and then I remembered the great Linda Ellerby, who years ago was a big, big anchor at NBC News, and she'd say, "Don't trust anybody in this business who hasn't been fired at least twice." So well, there you are, that's right? Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Good. So. Uh, you've just taught me something. I can call instead of saying I got fired at Tinder, I can say it was non renewal, renewal of contract. Con- I like, yes, uh, everybody I like should that. take that ball and absolutely run with it. <laughs> it sounds so much better. <laughs> what a great story, Christopher. Awesome. As we finish up, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Because I think it's important to note that through these important failures and stumbles, that can be hugely stressful. And I find sometimes my throat is filled with my heart. I get so anxious and stressed because we all are living very busy lives. And I think it's important to hear from you how you have learned to mitigate that stress. Yeah, you know, look, I also want to be clear with your listeners and with you that like, uh, you know, certainly not perfect at at this. Like I, I think I wear things on my sleeve, you know, I take the, the weight of the things that I do very seriously. And that is both a strength and a challenge Mm -hmm. because then you end up in a financial crisis and you're worried about losing money from all your, your friends and family. And you're like, Holy cow, like, why did I put myself in a situation? Right. And so I think, um, I think the thing I would say is that, you know, first of all, you you need to be, you, you become aware that like, this is stressful. And I think a lot of people focus on the stress of the individual situation that they're in. Oh, I'm going to work like crazy for these three weeks to deal with the pandemic and those types of things. The truth is I've uncovered over time for me anyways, it's the cumulative effect of the stress that hurts me the most, Mm. right? It's not any one like situation. And so I very much try to take care of myself, my energy, my, my, um, you know, time, um, family's super important to me. I have always carved out time for that. Like I am home at five, I'm with the family. Like there's no substitute for that because that's the source of, of my inspiration and, and my energy. And you just have to make that like for me that I have to make priority. I get, I get energy from being outside. I, I you know, I, I very much like the walk and contemplative time. I do that. It recharges yes. me. Sometimes I'll literally, you know, and so I, I think figuring out what de-stresses you slash sort of makes you whole slash what gives you work-life balance it is is the is the number one tactic that i have mm. uh, you know i i could have said things like oh let it roll off your back and these types of things but the truth is i can't do that if something goes wrong at doordash you know and, and it's a problem i'm gonna i'm gonna lean in like it's the i got every, i got throw everything i got at it like mm-hmm. this is that's just who i am and it's the i try to create the conditions that um, allow me to deal with those peaks and valleys without getting sort of sucked in. But you own your energy, you own your balance. And if you take responsibility for that, I think you can have a much, much longer and healthier career. Oh, I love that. And throw in a mojito and some really good chocolate, and then you're just good to go. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Christopher, what a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for opening yourself up and opening the window into your world and how you have climbed from flipping burgers at McDonald's to president of DoorDash. I just love it. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Much appreciated. See, you guys, this is what we do. We bring you these stories every single week, and we work so hard to make sure you understand that it is difficult, and you are. It's okay. You're supposed to be lonely or worried or scared or fired or fail. That is all part of the climb up the mountain. So thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. You know I just adore you guys, but you need to adore me back 3 p.m. Eastern every single day, Monday through Friday. It's the Claim and Countdown, and we are beating the competition. I, I'm, like, all geeked up about that, so I have to, you know, spread that word, too. But thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.